Thanks for listening to the weekend message from Abundant Life Church. Most weeks on the podcast, you'll hear teaching from our lead pastor, Jeremy Jernigan. We have campuses in Oregon and Washington and are committed to giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. Find out more about Abundant Life Church at alcpnw.com. Well, welcome to Abundant Life Church. It is so great to be with you. My name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, you came on a great week. We are talking about something very exciting. And we're in week four of our Finding Jesus in Christianity. And so if you've been with us this month, uh, if you have a journal, I encourage you to get that out and go to week four. You'll see it's about to take notes there. And, uh, and if not, uh, you can get something to write with. Uh, we're just so glad that you're here. I wanna give a shout out to any of those uh, of you who are watching or listening online or through a podcast. Uh, so glad to have you guys a part of this as well. So we're week four of this. encourage you to get that ready. And then also in our Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27. So Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Uh, if you get your uh, physical Bible out, you can get a spot there. If you've got a Bible app or, or on a, a device or phone, I encourage you to get that out as well. And we'll be in Matthew 27 in just a few moments. Now, I'm excited that you're here today because today I'm going to preach on a passage that I have never in my life heard a sermon on. Now, that might not seem like a a big claim to make, but I have grown up in the church. Like as long as I can remember, I was sitting in the church and my dad is a preacher, so I've heard more sermons than anyone should ever hear in their life. And I have preached them and I mean, I just have like all around it, never once. Have I heard a sermon about the passage we're gonna talk about today? And you might think, well, that's gonna be a real bold move uh, or really stupid, and we'll find out as we go. But I'm very excited, and we're gonna see, and I have loved preparing the message for this one. Now, to get us ready for that, uh, I wanna give you a little illustration. Uh, It reminds me of the actor Sean Bean. Now, you might know uh, this actor. He became famous for Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones, and he's been in a number of different things. Uh, but what's interesting about him, and if you've ever seen anything that he's in, as an actor uh, and the different roles that he has played, he has died 23 times on screen, <laughs> which is remarkable, you know, to, for one actor to go through that much. And I was thinking about what kind of a perspective would you have of your own life if you had to, you know, reenact your death 23 times in 23 different stories and 23 different characters. I mean, you'd be really good at it. And you might think like that's his bread and butter. Uh, But now he has launched a little mini campaign. uh, Basically, don't kill me. (laughs) So he has said he will not take any new role if the role involves his death. And uh, and so he's, he's passed up on a few opportunities going, look, you're gonna kill me again, I, I've done it, I don't want you know, my character to die anymore. And I just thought that was so humorous, and what kind of a perspective would he have? And yet, for, for the rest of us, death is something we're probably afraid of, and probably don't like thinking about, and, and you're going, all right, why, why are we talking about all this? Well, we're gonna get into Matthew 27, we're gonna pick up reading in verse 50. If you are with me last week, I talked about the crucifixion of Jesus, and, and that this, uh, between the crucifixion and the resurrection, this is what our faith is built on uh, for those of us who are, are Christians. And, and so we picked up on the crucifixion. That's last week's message. You can watch that online if you missed it. But we're gonna pick up today with Jesus still on the cross, okay? So we haven't fully got through the, the crucifixion at this point in Matthew's uh, narrative. And Matthew's one of the, the people who were there. They, he saw it. He, he was you know, with all the people who experienced this. And so I want us to see the crucifixion and the resurrection through Matthew's point of view. We're gonna let Matthew shape uh, the way he experienced it in this narrative today. So Matthew 27, begin reading in verse 50. It says this, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. 
Okay, so this is the moment Jesus actually dies. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, in case you're new to the whole Bible thing, that may, might, might not make any sense to you. That's a reference to uh, the Jewish temple and the tradition there, and, and that there was a, a place where God's presence was, but you couldn't get to that place. And it was the Holy of Holies, and, and the, the final boundary was this giant curtain. And only the high priest and only at certain times of the year would be able to get beyond the curtain to get into the presence of God. For everyone else, it's like, yeah, you're not going to get in there. But the moment Jesus dies, this barrier to entry rips dramatically. And all of a sudden, everyone's going, well, what does that mean? And, and it has huge implications. So the, the curtain rips from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split. And, now don't miss this part, the tombs broke open, okay? So this earthquake happens the moment Jesus breathes his last, and there's tombs around uh, Jerusalem. They break open and catch this line. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Are you with me? They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city, which is Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. Have you ever noticed this passage before? Uh, we were discussing this with some of our, our worship team this week, and I wasn't originally planning on using this passage, and yet in that conversation, they're like, what is this? What is going on here? And I'm like, challenge accepted. Let's figure out how on earth do we make sense of this? Now, Matthew's playing with time a little bit. If you notice, he says that uh, the tombs break open at the death of Jesus, but it's after the resurrection, Matthew says, that they come to life. So that's a three-day span uh, from the earthquake that, that causes the tombs to open until these bodies come to life. And, and, and so I want you to imagine this scene. Now, again, this is weird. I get it. But let's use our imaginations to, to see it from Matthew's point of view or to at least imagine if we were there, what would we see? Now, these bodies uh, would have had to walk up to the city of Jerusalem. Now, you may not understand why that is, uh, but let me show you a, a picture of modern-day Jerusalem. This was taken on a trip that we were in uh, a year ago. And again, as a side note, we have a couple spots left in our uh, Israel and Palestine trip. If you're interested, uh, now's the time to sign up. Uh, you can go see this this March. But what you're looking at is you're on one hilltop looking at another hilltop. And, and so right here is the, what's called the Temple Mount. This is now the Dome of the Rock. Uh, that was where the temple was in Jesus' day. And so uh, you have this valley right here, and so you'd walk up to get into Jerusalem. Again, you're on another hill looking over this valley. But here's what I wanted to point out. Right here is a cemetery. That these are all tombs. Uh, these have been there you know, for a long time. And so I imagine this as I read this, that these tombs are all coming, you know, they're breaking open, they're coming to life, and you've got the sea of bodies, women and men, walking up to Jerusalem, and they have to walk up the hill into Jerusalem. And can you imagine that scene? Now, we don't know what they look like. Did they have normal clothes? Uh, did they, you know, were they fully, like, looked healthy? Like, we don't know what they look like. Or, or, but how do people know that these were resurrected bodies? Well, I suspect one reason why is you might be in Jerusalem having lunch. You see a crowd of people walk up, and you're like, Grandpa? <laughs> like, like, Grandpa, I haven't, I haven't seen you in decades since you died. Like, what's up? What do you, and he's like, 
I don't know. I just, my tomb broke open. I'm alive now. And so we thought we'd walk around and see what Jerusalem looks like today. I mean, like it was a bizarre scene. And some commentators even believe that maybe this was like some of the heroes of the Old Testament came to life. Like, can you imagine? It's like, oh, it's Abraham all of a sudden or, or Moses or, you know, I mean, like King David. I mean, like, who did they see that all of a sudden is raised back to life and, and, and now they're walking around Jerusalem? And most of us are like, that's pretty bizarre. Now, Matthew doesn't give us a ton of detail. So let's just use our imaginations and I'll, I'll just guess what I think might be going on based on what I see in the text here. I suspect uh, that this is a resurrection once and for all, meaning I wouldn't think uh, that after all of these bodies are brought back to life, that they have to go and die again, because that would be kind of a morbid thing to do, like, a, like not really great for them. So I think what happened is uh, God wants to make a point. So he raises Jesus back to life. Then he raises a whole bunch of other people back to life, makes sure that a bunch of people see them. And he's like, all right, I made my point. Let's go home. And takes all these bodies, kind of like he did with some uh, people in the Old Testament, and just whooshes them back up, and, and they're in heaven. And if that is accurate, which is the way I imagine it, that would mean you would have a bunch of empty tombs left over. Now imagine this. Uh, you walk to the tombs, and you're trying to figure out what on earth just happened. And, and then you have the question, hey, um, are these guys coming back? Like, are they going to need this? Or do we, like, just put someone else in it or cover it up? Or, like, what do we do with their tomb there's no body in it anymore. Like, like, should we save it for them? I mean, it would be the strangest thing to try to make sense of, like, what is going on here? Now, here's what's interesting. Matthew, of the gospel writers, is the only one who acknowledges this. No other gospel writers. Uh, Mark, you know, Luke, John, they don't mention this scene. And if you notice, Matthew just says it very matter of fact. Like, this is what happened, and of course you know this is what happened. And the rest of us are going, We'd like a little bit more detail. Like, like, I have some questions, I have some things. This seems very random to us, but Matthew doesn't seem to think that it's random. I, I wonder why. Well, let me give you one possible explanation as to why this wouldn't have seemed so random to them. This might be connecting an iconic Old Testament passage to this scene. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a prophet named Ezekiel. And one of the really bizarre stories about Ezekiel is that one day God brings Ezekiel into what's called the Valley of Dry Bones. And so he's literally probably a scene of an Israelite battle the Israelites lost. And so you have this army of bones uh, that, you know, just all the dead have fallen and didn't have a chance to get buried. So Ezekiel is led there. And then God says to him, I want you to prophesy, that's what prophets do, to dead bones, not what prophets do, right? And so Ezekiel's like, Wait, what? Yeah, I want you to prophesy to the dead bones. And so I'm gonna explain a confusing story with a more confusing story, right? This is how, if you're paying attention. And so I wanna read to you Ezekiel 37 because I think these two stories are connected, but rather than just me reading it to you, I want you to watch a video that goes through the text and imagines what it might have looked like to see this scene played out in Ezekiel 37. So what you're about to hear is the text of Ezekiel 37 with some reenactment to give us imagination. Watch this. Now, I don't know 
how that stirs you up, maybe that's like a really beautiful picture for you of, of resurrection power or, or of what God might do or, or imagining a loved one that you have lost, you know, experienced life again. Maybe that's a little bit creepy to you. You're thinking, this is strange. Uh, I don't really understand this story. What's going on here? Well, if you keep reading in Ezekiel 37, because again, that was the text of Ezekiel 37. If you keep reading, the next few verses say this in verses 11 and 12. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Now here's what's interesting about this. Uh, this is, again, an Old Testament connection made many years prior, but if you notice this line that I highlighted, it's exactly what we just read in Matthew 27. So at the kind of the tail end of this iconic scene in Ezekiel 37 is a, a foretaste of what we witness in Matthew 27. Now, I want you to think about, if this was the story you were raised with, which again, every, you know, every Jew in that day would know this story, they'd be very familiar with this story. If that's what you were raised with, and then you witness the events of Matthew 27, you watch the graves break open and, and dead people come back to life, would you not make a connection to this story? Would you not see some parallel here of like, wait a minute, I remember one of our prophets had a scene that was similar and now we're literally witnessing this happen in the death and the resurrection of this guy named Jesus. Now, let's take a little time out for a second. Let's say that you're here right now and you're thinking, yeah, right, okay? Uh, you're thinking, hey, Jeremy, that's great uh, for those of you that this makes sense to, uh, but you just gave us one confusing story, and then you tried to explain it with a more confusing story, and none of this makes sense. Now, if you're here with us today, or you're watching or listening, uh, and, and you're going, yeah, this is me. I don't really buy into this whole Jesus thing, or this Bible thing, or this Christianity thing. Look, we are so glad that you're here. You are absolutely welcome here. Uh, you are welcome to disagree with us. You're welcome to, to process these questions together. I want to just speak to you for a second because I know what it can feel like to hear a story like this and go, oh, the rest of you believe this, but this sounds crazy. Now, if we are going to follow a supernatural God, which is what we find in the scriptures, we have to acknowledge some of the things that this supernatural God does are going to be difficult for us to explain. There will be things that we go, I'm not sure what to do with that. And then you've got to figure out what do you do in that situation when something is a bit strange or maybe difficult to figure out. Well, throughout this series, I've been referencing back to the book Irresistible uh, from Andy Stanley, and it's kind of where we got the, the premise of the series. And Andy makes an argument that I find very helpful whenever you get into a situation like this. Here's his argument. If someone predicts their own death and resurrection and pulls it off, we should go along with whatever that person says. <laughs> I like that reasoning. I don't know about you, it works for me. Because here's the deal, I'm not smart enough to make sense of every supernatural thing God has ever done. I, I, I can't do it, I can give you my ideas on them, but at the end of the day I have to go, yeah, that one's a bit beyond me. I don't know how all of a sudden all these dead people are walking, that's a little bit beyond me. But I like this logic to go, well, here's the deal. If someone predicts their death and resurrection, which Jesus did, and pulls it off, which Jesus did, I'm gonna go with him. 
Like no one else in history has ever done that. So for me, that's a pretty compelling reason to go, yeah, whatever Jesus did, I, I'm gonna go with that because no one else has ever pulled this off. And, and maybe if you have ever struggled to explain your faith, you can go with that logic too. Like, I don't know how to explain that, but if someone predicts their death and the resurrection and they pull it off, I'm gonna go with whatever that person says. And, and so uh, we, we look at this story and we go, what's going on here? How do we make sense of this? Now, you might think Matthew would be aware of this and go, oh, look, I know that if you're reading this account, you're gonna have a really hard time with this, so let me unpack the details of how this resurrection of all these people took place. Matthew doesn't do that. Matthew just skips right on. He's like, all right, next point. And his next point is he wants to show us the reaction that this event created. Because for Matthew, it's not just the event, it's what did the event stir up in people? And that's where he spends the next few verses. The next verse is verse 54, and it says this. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, now again, we don't know, is this right at the crucifixion or is this you know, encompassing the three days of the resurrection as well. We don't quite know. All that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Now, this is an unbelievable statement to read. The centurion worked for Rome. He was a professional killer. His job was to crucify people that Rome told him to crucify. He was incredibly efficient at it. It's what he did every day. He would literally, who's up today? Let's nail him to a cross. We know how to kill him. We know how to do all this. It's what they would do day in and day out. He would not have thought twice about it. That's literally his job. And yet he witnesses this and he says, I think that was God. What has to happen to go from the mental shift of crucifying a person to moments later or perhaps days later saying, I think that person I just killed was God. Like, like what has to happen in your brain to make that connection? You would have had to seen something so overwhelming to make that leap. And that's the power of the resurrection. That, that what he witnesses, he goes, I've never seen anything like this. And for this outsider who is not a God follower, was not a Christ follower, he looks and goes, I think this guy's God. Like, I've never seen this happen. Which is a great reminder for us today that maybe uh, you're here today and you're going, yeah, I would love to be a part of this story, but um, Jeremy, you just don't know my story. You don't know where I've been. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know my past. Like, I just am not the kind of person that God's gonna use. Well, if, if God can convert the centurion who nailed him to the cross and he can figure out what's going on, I don't think any of us are off the hook, okay? I think all of us can go, yeah, God could probably use us as well, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done. It's an incredible reaction. The centurion, what he has seen, moves him from a place over here and he says, I, I think this is God. Now, there's another reaction that Matthew talks about in the next couple of verses, verse 55. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. And among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now, this is the point in the story you're going, what? Why is Matthew including this? Like, that seems like a, a detail that adds nothing to the story. Why, why this detail? The centurion was a cool reaction. Why is Matthew taking the time to list out these women? Well, here's what's remarkable. You may not notice at first glance. Matthew's version of this never mentions the guys who are there at the crucifixion. 
We wouldn't know. If all we had was Matthew's account, we would not know which of the male disciples were there because Matthew doesn't list them. You know who Matthew lists? The women that were there. Now, this is a a huge uh, upside down moment where you're going, wait, something weird is happening. Because in this culture, women were not seen with value. Women had no credibility, they had no testimony. And, And so you would never in this culture include women in a story to try to make any kind of persuasive argument. It wouldn't make sense. And yet Matthew omits the guys and he says, I want you to know that there were women there, and the reason they were there is because they were involved in Jesus's ministry. And in the moment that he dies and he's gonna be brought back to life, they have, have you know, front row seats to that. They are at the center of that. And what this should remind us of today is that Jesus radically empowered women in his ministry. And when the, the early church was beginning, it was done largely in, in part with women who to that point were not able to have a story like this. They were not able to be included like this. But this story was different. And Matthew's drawing our attention to go, hey, I need you to understand that the way this one took place, women were at the center of it. And so in the reaction to what is going on here, Matthew wants to, to highlight women saw this event. And the reason you and I are here today is because those women and and some men saw the death of Jesus, saw the resurrection of Jesus, they told other people about it, and eventually they wrote it down. And they thought, we need to make sure everyone else knows what we have seen. It was that important of a story then. That's why the Apostle Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. Why? For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. Paul's like, our message has been, we watched Jesus come back to life. That's our story. And so if we're not right about that, if that's not the right detail, the rest of this means nothing. Because we're all building it on this one story. We have seen him killed and we have seen him brought back to life. And because we saw that, it changes everything. It was the evidence that the early church was waiting for to go, this is what we were hoping for. Now again, God did it in a totally different way than they were anticipating, but they're realizing this proves what we had suspected. And so today, this is the the, the story that we now center our faith in. As we've talked about each week of this series, Stanley says this, we must tether the faith of this generation to the event, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus that sparked the movement, the church, that brought us the Bible. So as we figure out how do we make sense of all this today, we go back to build our faith on what had built the faith of the early church, what they had seen and experienced firsthand. Now last week, uh, if you're with us, I I, I explained the, the crucifixion. I said how we can't jump over the crucifixion because the crucifixion uniquely teaches us the character of God. But by this point, when you get to the resurrection, temptation is to go, okay, now we can downplay the crucifixion because we've got the resurrection. So let's celebrate the resurrection. And if we're not careful, what we end up doing is making the resurrection replace the crucifixion. Like we can skip that part, we can get over that part because we have the resurrection, so let's skip it. But, but you have to keep them both. Uh, you know, you have two hands, hold one in each hand. Like you have to pe- keep them together to understand the meaning of both. As the theologian Greg Boyd says it, the resurrection is God's endorsement 
of the cross. See, because of the resurrection, we can go back and look at the cross and we can validate the cross, that the cross worked. See, the cross looks like it's losing. It looks like, man, that's the dumbest thing that could possibly have happened. But no, no, God goes, look, I'm gonna endorse it, that that kind of power works. When you give power away, as we discussed last week, when you give power away, that is the ultimate power. And that's the kind of power that God uses which is why, uh, if you're new, uh, our mission statement as a church is that we are giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others because we see that modeled in the crucifixion and the resurrection of the person of Jesus. And so here's the good news for you and I today. If you're trying to figure out, okay, what, what do we do with this? What, what do we do with a story that's like this weird of a story? What you can r- realize is that Jesus' victory is a shared victory. See, it wasn't just that, oh, great news for Jesus. He's brought back to life. No, no, I don't know about you. That would be like, be enough for me. Like if I was watching this and going, okay, I watched you crucified. Then you came back to life. Good, I'll follow you the rest of my day. But Jesus like, no, no, I wanna invite other people to my resurrection party. And so he brings other people back to life as well. And so not only did they see Jesus, but they got to talk to whoever it was that God brought back to life from the Old Testament, from from, uh, previous, and they got to see all of this, and all of this created the new invitation for them to go, this is what God is now inviting you and I to experience. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Why is he the first? Because it's an invitation for you and I to be a part of the same resurrection movement today. That if you would submit your life to the person of Jesus, you get to join in to this resurrection party. You get to be a part of the same power that we see in the cross, uh, the same power that is in the resurrection is now available to you and I. So let me ask you this question. As you look at your life right now, whatever you came in with here today, Where do you need some resurrection power in your life? What are those things right now that are weighing heavily upon you? Those anxieties that you carry with you? Those things that that keep you up at night? Those those stresses that you have? What are those things you're going, "Ah, this just seems hopeless. Where do you need some resurrection power in your life? Because if we understand what the early church saw and experienced, we would see the invitation for you and I to tap into this same story today. Paul says in Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. You see, if if you submit your life to Jesus, the same power that raised Jesus to life, that same breath of God that animated the bones is now available to you and I, that that breath fills us up as well when we feel hopeless, when we feel the despair, and it should change the way we live. And that's why I love studying the, the early church. How did, how did a, a group of misfits turn into this movement that, that would forever change not only the Roman Empire, but the world as we know it? How did that happen? I wanna ask a weird question because I think this gets to the heart of it. What would the early church be afraid of? So if you know the history of the church, for the first few centuries, Rome persecuted the Christians. It killed them, uh, made life miserable for a Christian. Uh, you would never be a Christian out of convenience or, hey, I'll, I'll get more reputation, more respect. No, you, you, would, you would lose things that would cost you things and the church 
thrived. Can you imagine Rome saying, hey, you better bow down to Caesar or else we'll kill you. Church goes, "Hmm? we've seen what happens to dead people. Do your worst, right? I mean, if you had seen it, you're like, you're gonna kill me. I've watched Jesus, you know, come back to life. I've watched other people come back to life. I'm not scared. Do what you gotta do. I mean, their perspective would be so bold because of what they had seen. Again, I think of Sandy's line. If someone predicts their own death and resurrection and pulls it off, let's go along with whatever that person says. They had witnessed it. They watched it. And so there was nothing that Rome could do to them to to deter them, to scare them, to shut them up. They're like, look, we watched Jesus predict it. We watched him do it. And we know the invitation for us today. And, And maybe for us today, church, it's time to see some dead people walking. It's time for us to have the same boldness that the early church had to to look at the same event that they were looking at, which launched the movement that we're a part of today. We need to tap into the same power. And so my, my encouragement to you today is this, that resurrection power cannot be contained. If you understand this story, what you begin to realize is that this resurrection power didn't just raise Jesus to life, it raised other people to life. And that that is the first of what will come for you and I as well. That this resurrection power spills over or bleeds over, if you will. And you and I get to experience the same power today. And if we understood that, if we understood you cannot contain this kind of power, then, then we would live with a different kind of confidence a different kind of boldness. Now, I wanna close with a story, and I'm gonna apologize in advance for this story, and you'll understand why in a second. A few years ago, I got a phone call from my wife. I was headed out to a, uh, a church retreat, had uh, our oldest in the car with me, and, uh, and my wife calls, and, and she says, hey, I know you're on your way out, but I need to let you know something that Matson did. Now, I don't know if your family has a couple crazy kids. Uh, we've got five kids, so we've got a few they're a little bit nuts. And uh, Matson's one of those, always getting into something, always keeping me on my toes. And, and at this point in his life, I think he was six at this point, he'd already had a concussion, uh, multiple surgeries. Uh, he had you know, pins in his arm and I mean, all kinds of weird things he'd already gotten into. And so my wife says, hey, I gotta tell you what Matson did. I'm bracing myself. I'm like, all right, well, this guy's been into a lot. What's he into now? And she said, Matson swallowed a nickel. I'm like, okay, that's a new one. We haven't dealt with that yet. So I said, what do you do when a child swallows a nickel? And she goes, I don't know. I called the doctor, I left a message. They're gonna call me back and and let me know. I just wanted to let you know. So I'm like, okay. I get a call back a little bit later. And she goes, all right, here's the deal. Just talk to the doctor. And they said that we need to wait for Matson to pass it. Now, if you don't know what that's a reference to, um, That's a bodily function that we assign a number to, and it's not the number one, okay? Uh, so <laughs> use your imagination. And so we have to wait for him to pass it, and if he doesn't pass it, uh, we are gonna have to have a surgery that's gonna be a pretty invasive surgery. So we really need him to pass it. Thus began the weirdest prayer week of my life, as I specifically, in the name of Jesus, prayed for my son to pass a nickel. And, uh, and it was a very bizarre time, uh, but I, you know, I was up at this camp, and so I'm getting play-by-play. Well, there's one more detail, because uh, if you've ever had this story, uh, you know that you have to be sure that your child has passed it, um, which means you have to check. <laughs> 
you, you have to go through it, you know, and, and check to see if it's actually happened. And so uh, my wife had to buy this like little porta potty thing that he would have to go in whenever he had to go so that she could go through it uh, while I was away on, on a trip, thank the Lord. And, uh, and she would have to, <laughs> let's be honest, I have a weak stomach. She's way better pre- prepared for this than I am. She can handle it. So she's like, I have to go through it and I have to check to see if this Nicholas pass. And if not, over a certain amount of time, we have to go in and, and do the surgery. And so uh, we start praying. Okay, God, we need Matson to pass his nickel. And, uh, and day after day goes by and no nickel. And you know, I get home a few days later and uh, it's pretty tense you know, as we're praying about this nickel and going, okay, God, we need this to happen. And Matson's starting to get stressed about it. Like, what can I do? You know, how can I get this nickel out? I'm like, buddy, I don't think you can just make that decision. You know, I think your body's gotta do it. And so we're just talking through it. And, and every day is just a little bit stressful because uh, the, the, the tension is rising of the surgery is looming. If we don't you know, have this little guy pass this nickel. And, and so every time you know, he goes to the bathroom, he'd go in there and then Michelle would go in and she'd sort through it. And I'm going, Jesus, please. Jesus, I need there to be a nickel in this, you know, please. And he'd be like, no nickel. I'm like, oh man. And so day after day of this, and, and so we're about a week into it, and, and I'm, I'm starting to think, our chances don't look good. You know, if he would have passed it, it'd already be by now. And so I'm getting a little bit nervous. And I remember one day, he's like, all right, I gotta go to the bathroom again. So we all gather around, have a little prayer circle, you know, over <laughs> Matson's bowel movement. And, and so uh, finally, you know, Michelle's going through it, and she's like, there's a nickel! And all of a sudden, I mean, like everyone's high-fiving. We are celebrating. Matson looked like he just ran a marathon in record time, and he's just beaming. And I'm like, yes, this is so amazing. Way to go, guys. This is so exciting. I mean, just like tension is lifted, and everything is great. And then I'm like, what are we going to do with the nickel? But no one else was asking that question, which I thought was weird. You know what I mean? Like, I think we should save the nickel. And, you know... So I was like, what would you save a nickel for? I'm like, I don't know, make a necklace out of it? (laughs) Hear me out, hear me out. So he's like at a date later in life and he's got this necklace on. (laughs) And the girl says to him, hey, what's up with the nickel? And he goes, let me tell you a story. I mean, right, like you would never forget that first date. And so I said, hey, let's keep it. I'll turn it into a necklace or something. And my wife said, no, she said, no. But sometimes, sometimes you just gotta follow your heart, you know? You will never forget this sermon. You're like, all right, pastor, how are you gonna tie this one in? Are you ready? Some things cannot be contained. (laughs) Just like this little nickel could not remain in my son's body, the power of the resurrection cannot remain idle inside of us. If we are going to follow the risen Jesus today who went to a cross to show his power and then was you know, revealed that that power works, is raised back to life and then invites you and I to experience the same kind of resurrection as the same breath is in our lungs, it is time for us to live with some resurrection power. Can I get an amen? It is time for us to live with boldness 
to not be afraid of what this world presents to us. That you know what? That might be uh, intense and that might be overwhelming and I might be afraid of that. But you know what? I follow a guy who predicted his death and his resurrection and he pulled it off. And so I'm gonna go with whatever that guy says. And we live out our life based on the person of Jesus, the same thing that the early church had seen. And we say, you know what, that's good enough for us. And if we were to live like this, our, our church would be changed, our communities would be changed, the states around us would be changed. I mean, if we were to live with this resurrection power as it came out of us into everyone around us, it would never be the same. Now, let me close with a quote so that I don't close with a nickel illustration, okay? Here's what Pastor April Fiat says. I wonder if, Perhaps Ezekiel was taken to the Valley of Dry Bones so that Ezekiel might get a glimpse at resurrection so that he would be able to believe for himself that it was possible. He needed to see for himself that hope was still possible so that he could go to the people and tell them nothing was too far gone for God. If even Ezekiel needed that, maybe we need it sometimes too. Do you need some power? of the resurrection in your life today? What feels overwhelming? What feels hopeless? What feels daunting? The power of the resurrection cannot be contained. Let's pray together. Jesus, as we dive into this story, as we explore what you have done for us, may we live with the same boldness as your early church. May we live in this same power today. May we see the challenges before us, the obstacles in front of us with the same hope and optimism that the early church did as they were persecuted for what they believed. May we realize that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to each and every one of us in this moment. May people see the power of the resurrection as they watch us live, as they watch us live out our faith, as they watch us make the gospel good news for those around us. And may you use people like us as you use the women and men of the early church to forever change what the world says is normal. We ask and imagine this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.